Start facing out. So you, you don't hit it off. So you don't hit All right, now it's recording. Good morning, everyone. My name is Devin Zuber, and this is the seventh lecture at the Freiburg New Church Assembly. The title of my talk is A Bird's Life, Sarah Orne Jewett, George Innes, and the Art of Swedenborgian Ornithological Conservation, also known as the Fifth Day of Creation. Maybe the longest title in the history of Freiburg lectures, but I promise it will be succinct. And today is August 4th, for those of you who are listening to this or following it on the live stream on Facebook. <coughs> so this builds on my last lecture we had on, uh, what was it, Tuesday, which began quite broadly in talking about the parameters of my book project and the ways, rather than that only being a historicizing project about Swedenborg's influence in the 19th century, how might we green Swedenborgian theology and think about the creation story in light of ecological crisis, be it climate change, the plastic swirl in the middle of the Pacific, or the sixth great extinction of animal species currently underway. There's a lot about our relationship with the natural world that seems off. So how might Swedenborgian theology be a resource for thinking through some of those ethical problems we face as a species. Today will be more contained to a particular moment in the late 19th century, very much here in New England with a Maine writer and a New Jersey painter who both turn towards birds with a particular Swedenborgian way of representation. But I still think there are some lessons to be intuited and drawn out from that moment in the history of art and literature. Before we get into Sarah Orne Jewett and George Innes, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the chapters in the book that come prior to what I have to say about uh, Innes and Jewett. This is the final chapter of my book, and my text follows a very sort of chronological drift, where I begin with looking at Swedenborgian theology in its 18th century context and talk about some of the things I mentioned on Tuesday, I proceed on to look at Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the sage of Concord who kickstarts the transcendentalist movement and his friendship with Thoreau. That circle is really the foundation for what some have called the environmental imagination in the 19th century, a new way of looking at the natural world with reverence and respect that helps feed into conservation and preservation movements. After the Emerson chapter, I go into looking at, let's see if we can make technology work here. Remember we started with Johnny Appleseed, that image as a metaphor for the presence of proto-conservation in the American 19th century. The chapter after Emerson plays around with these two figures. Um, on the left we have William Keith, a Swedenborgian landscape painter on the west coast. If you've been to the Swedenborgian San Franciscan church, those beautiful murals on the back wall, four of them of the California seasons, are painted by William Keith. On the right, does anyone recognize the figure on the right? Muir. It's a very famous image of John Muir. 
in many ways, modern environmentalism begins with Muir and the way his particular advocacy for the preservation of wilderness spaces undergirds um, the legal enfranchisement of the national park system and uh, lobbying uh, politics to intercede on behalf of nature. So um, I talk about their deep, here we go. This is a Keith painting, and in my chapter I talk a lot about how um, the more Keith read Swedenborg, the more abstract and subjective his landscape paintings became, less connected to particular places and more ephemeral about the inner spiritual experience of a place. Nevertheless, at the end of his life, one of the great environmental struggles that Muir and Keith and the Sierra Club, Muir's organization, got embroiled in was a project to dam a beautiful valley neighboring Yosemite Valley in the Sierra Nevada for making more drinkable and potable water for San Franciscans, which was a very thirsty growing city. So um, that had already been declared um, protected wilderness space, and it would require a federal act to undo the laws protecting Hetch Hetchy Valley. For John Muir, he felt like this was um, a catastrophe. So he asked his friend, William Keith, um, to create a body of paintings in his subjective late landscape style in his work that would be exhibited before Congress as testimony of the capacious beauty of those wilderness areas. So these paintings were shown in the rotunda in Washington, D.C. as part of an advocacy project to stop Hetch Hetchy from being dammed. So it's a very interesting way where specifically Swedenborgian art, because William Keith, like George Innes, didn't just read Swedenborg, he felt like it, it changed the whole way one thought about representation. If the spiritual world indeed is always flowing into the natural, how you show nature as a Swedenborgian um, has a particular special dimension to it. So this was evidence to try and convince Congress not to let um, the Riker, what came to be called the Riker Act, from going through to make this a damned area. And if, has anyone been to Hetch Hetchy here, who spent time in the Sierra Nevadas? Um, they lost their battle. And some say this was the fight that sent John Muir to his grave. He was so disappointed at the loss of this, this wilderness space. So, it's always ironic when you're talking about nature and your technology refuses to cooperate. Some of the most exciting research in my book around Muir and Keith has been discovering the way Muir's indebtedness to Swedenborgian thought has been profoundly overlooked. So probably the most exciting Indiana Jones moment of my research was here in the Muir archive at University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, in the finding aid for all the Muir papers and books from his library that are there. It said there was nothing of interest in his copies of a little text by a certain Samson Reed from Massachusetts, the Swedenborgian druggist, who wrote a book 
uh, in eight, first published in 1826, called Growth of the Mind, that distills notions of correspondence and influx into a kind of semiotics of nature, where Reed calls for um, us needing a new language, a language of things, to talk about the presence of divinity in the natural world. And this little book became critically important for American transcendentalism. Emerson handed it out like candy to his friends. He sent a copy to Thomas Carlyle in England. And when the older Emerson finally met John Muir in the uh, Yosemite Valley in the Sierra Nevadas, he sent him in the mail a few weeks later a copy of Samson Reed's Little Swedenborgian Book. So in the finding aid in Stockton, it said there was nothing in this Swedenborgian text that Muir did with. And when I opened it up, I immediately found there were all these pressed wildflowers in the pages of the book, that Muir had read his Swedenborgian book um, somewhere up in the mountains, because also in the margins, Muir had sketched these exquisite, tiny filigree drawings of mountain peaks and lakes. And it was precisely at the moment in the text when Samson Reed was talking about um, notions of correspondence in nature. So it's a very clear way, um, here's another oak leaf in the margins, um, a very clear way that Swedenborg, along with other writers, helped Muir view nature as a sacred script. That it wasn't simply a place for spiritual experience. Nature, if it was full of these correspondences and signifiers, worked like a text. And one had to have a proper hermeneutic to read that great book of spirit inscribed in mountain peaks. So um, in my chapter on um, Muir and then William Keith, I spend a lot of time unpacking how all over Muir's writing you can see this slipping of the word as holy book into nature as sacred text. And indeed, if you follow Muir's political activism and the essays he writes in newspapers advocating for the protection of Hetch Hetchy and other spaces, it uses the language of blasphemy and sacrilege, which came up in some of the presentations over the prior two days, to address the despoiling of nature. This is Muir's um, first great book. He publishes that helps uh, launch uh, to the attention to the Sierra Club and its advocacy efforts. What year? This is uh, 18, oh, I should know that. Um, Approximately. It's been a while since I've worked on this chapter. Uh, 1880s, I want to say. Don't go online to Google me, because we need the bandwidth for the, the live stream. But, but um, I had written that down, Herb, somewhere. Um, has anyone read my summer, my first summer in the High Sierras? It's sort of a recollection of Muir's first ecstatic encounter with California wilderness. So it's, it's written, uh, I think, two decades after uh, his first time in the mountains, what it was like to be there. And the book is filled with um, these kinds of statements. So I'll just give you uh, a sample of the flavor of how 
Swedenborgian doctrines helped think about nature as a text, as a holy sacred text, as the word. From a point about half a mile from our camp, we can see into the lower end of Yosemite Valley with its wonderful cliffs and groves, a grand page of mountain manuscript I would gladly give my life to be able to read. Oh, thank you, 1911, so I was off by 30 years. Too bad I can't change the live streaming on that. I hope no mirror scholars are watching this. I should have, I should have known that. Thank you, Randall. You said you wrote it 20 years after so it was the 1880s when you were still there, right? Right. From a point about a half a mile from our camp, we can see into the lower end of Yosemite Valley with its wonderful cliffs and groves, a grand page of mountain manuscript I would gladly give my life to be able to read. Perched like a fly in this Yosemite dome, I gaze and sketch and bask, perhaps sketching in his Samson Reed copy he clearly brought with him into the mountains oftentimes settling down into dumb admiration without definite hope of ever learning much, yet with a longing, unresting effort that lies at the door of hope, humbly prostrate before the vast display of God's power and eager to offer self-denial and renunciation with eternal toil to learn any lesson in the divine manuscript. Yeah, Muir has a very um, prosaic and poetic style of writing uh, which cribs in some ways uh, Emerson's way of writing about nature. He was deeply influenced by Emerson. What glorious landscapes are about me, new plants, new animals, new crystals, and multitudes of new mountains. What questions I asked and how little I know of all the vast show and how eagerly, tremulously hopeful of someday knowing more, learning the meaning of these divine symbols crowded together on this wondrous page. So on and so forth. And my chapter slows down just to think about how complex the rhetoric there is. It's on the one hand highly visual, it evokes categories of landscape aesthetics that you find in Keith's paintings and the two of them are painting and writing at the same time up in the mountains together but it brings you back to the text to an activity of hermeneutics of trying to find an internal sense in the landscape. It should be said too that Muir, like Emerson, was committed to science. Even as ecstatic and religious as the response to nature is, he believed one had to take into account um, the objectivity and empiricism that science was making. And there's a well-known anecdote in his life that some of you might know about um, Muir figuring out how mountains were shaped by glacial formation and the retreat of glaciers in the Sierra Nevadas and got into a very big argument with a more prominent scientist about that. So that, in a very quick nutshell, is what comes prior to the end of my book, which lands on birds. So we go from mountains to birds. I should have said, too, um, to backtrack just a little bit, because this is a fact that many confessional Swedenborgians aren't aware of. You've all heard of the Sierra Club. It still is doing critical conservation work. The slides aren't cooperating. I just want to go back to this picture here. Hard to see. This is William Keith in his studio in San Francisco. It was in this studio that the Sierra Club was born. 
the first informal meetings the Sierra Club had between the conversations happening between the geologist Joseph Lacant, John Muir, William Keith, um, they informally met in Keith's studio, surrounded by Swedenborgian landscape paintings. So we can think of that space incubating this critical conservation group that then emerged. It was later incorporated in the law offices of um, another Sierra Club member, Cheney. So up to birds. Unlike Keith and Muir, Keith became a card-carrying Swedenborgian. Muir, of course, did not um, and had reservations about, about Swedenborg. They were best buddies. They both were Scots immigrants, and their work evolved in tandem with each other. And my technology's on the fritz here. Let's go back to. Okay. Can I push it forward here? I don't think you can. Let me just see if I turn my phone off. Back on. I think, I think we're, we're good. This is the slide I wanted to be on. So unlike Muir and Keith, and now I'm going to shift more into the manuscript of this chapter, um, the regionalist fiction by Sarah Orne Jewett, pictured on the left, and the late paintings by George Innes, pictured here on the right, have no clear analogs in legal reform or agitation for a clearly environmental cause. And also, unlike Muir and Keith and their close friendship, Jewett and Innes never, to my knowledge, really knew each other or had any kind of professional contact or overlap. So other than a mutual and simultaneous interest in Swedenborg, why pair them together in a chapter in a book that is trying to establish a line of American aesthetics that consistently telegraphed Swedenborgian thought into environmental poetics? And the answer, to put it shortly, is birds. At key points in their careers, both Innes and Jewett created distinct works of art and literature that revolved around representations of herons, those long-legged water birds. Sarah Orne Jewett's earlier story, A White Heron, is perhaps her most famous piece of fiction and over the last 25 years, it has been revived and resuscitated by eco-criticism, that sort of niche study of literature that I mentioned in my Tuesday lecture, the study of texts for their ecological or environmental implication. It's been resuscitated by eco-critics as an important piece of environmental writing. Innes, in turn, during the last years of his life, created three very important paintings of herons, one of which, oh, come on. That jumped ahead. One of which, right here, the home of the heron, 
is regarded as one of his great masterpieces. This hangs at the Princeton Art Museum at Princeton University. And my argument about uh, Jewett's short story and Innes's paintings is a little complicated. I want to argue that neither can be extricated from the background context of a looming environmental crisis that happened at the end of the 19th century. The prospect of wholesale destruction of entire species of birds. In particular, plumed long feathered birds like herons and egrets that were being decimated by the women's fashion industry. <laughs> Literally pushed to the brink of extinction by the taste for hats. Let's just jump ahead to a representative example. These are egret plumes uh, on a woman's hat. This was all the rage for uh, fin de siècle, end of the 19th century, Belle Epoque, uh, America. And it um, almost wiped out some of our most beautiful long-legged water birds, this, this fashionable taste. So my argument is, even though Jewett's fiction and Innes's paintings aren't agitprop, they're not banging you on the head and saying, you better join an Audubon society, you cannot understand them without situating them in this background context of bird conservation that's happening. If I had more time, I would go into how birds have played a critical role in the history of American environmentalism. Uh, the Audubon Society, which begins to be formed around the time of Jewett's writing, the first Audubon Society is in 1891, um, sorry, 1886, which is the same year that Sarah Orne Jewett publishes her famous bird story about herons. I've put up here just as a reference point because it's come up in conversations with some of you throughout this week. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which really could be said to be the single text in the 20th century that helps launch um, the modern environmental movement. Has anyone read um, Silent Spring? Excellent. Why is it called Silent Spring? Red Wing? It's called Silent because she talks about the danger of the death of birds and that the songbirds that we hear so frequently are becoming silent yeah. because they're being eradicated. Yeah. It opens up with a haunting apocalyptic vignette of no bird song in sort of suburban America. It's a really chilling and effective way that galvanized collective consciousness about environmental matters. And we're very indebted to this work because it helped lead to the creation of the EPA. And I wanted to put this up here today um, as part of the ongoing crisis we find ourselves in. One of the top EPA administrators who's been working there for 30 years through both Democratic and Republican administrations has just um, quit quite angrily and published a public letter saying, we are in a crisis. The current administration is so unscientific, they are trying to undo all the regulations that go back to Carson. So she mentioned Carson in her, uh, in her letter, which is worth reading. So the stakes that were uh, being raised at the end of the 19th century and in the 1960s around DDT and songbirds, we, we can't rest on the laurels of those accomplishments. They're, they're very urgent issues in the present as well.
Do you know the name of the person that you're talking about from the EPA? Who wrote the letter? Not off the top of my head. Okay. I'll send it to you. Okay. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to keep track of. Yeah. Every day brings you sort of a litany of oh my goodness. And, but this, this caught my attention because it was an EPA administrator who's not political, who's been doing the work for numerous administrations, who very publicly said, um, we have unhinged ourselves from science with the current policies that are trying to be implemented through that work like a bomb um, in completely deregulating uh, some of the protections we've gained for nature since uh, Carson and her work in the 60s. How so, long have these bad administrators been operating? Can you give it, it a decade or is it a year or 20 years? These, these EPA bad uh, uh, states of heads of state that you're talking about, how long have they been doing such damage? It's it's this, the current administration. This one only. Yeah. I I think I think it's pretty great when you have people inside the administration publicly releasing letters like this. Yes, if we listen to the people in the EPA, it's this administration. So um, to to think about politics, though, I think raises with this work such interesting questions because. It's not a petition to sign something on Facebook. Uh, it, it's not an advocacy call to engage politically. Instead, we're given these beautiful um, canvases that, to think of the reflections I offered this morning for our worship service together, wonder. Um, so in, in Innes's paintings and Sarah Orrin Jewett's fiction, we're given moments of deeply personalized, spiritualized connections to nature. Moments of rarefied transcendent perception that blur categories of distinction between viewer and the objects perceived, between figuration and atmospheric abstraction. This effect creates rhetorical and visual ambiguity. It's hard to tell what you're seeing in an Innes painting. And in a similar way, if you read Jewett's fiction, her story, A White Heron, it's very ambiguous. It's hard to tell what happens at a key moment in the story. There's a, a blurring of boundaries between human, non-human, and perhaps something else, something numinous. This sharpens, this ambiguity by contrast, a clear message from Jewett and Innes about what their nature is not that nature is not simply matter available for commercial extraction and exploitation, and that a higher use beyond the utilitarian calculus of markets and profits may lie in our ecstatic connection with something larger and non-human in nature that draws us out of ourselves. This spiritual value, I argue, is very different from both the free market economics of the Gilded Age that saw the natural world simply in terms of resource extraction and the cornucopic optimism of 19th century progressivism that assumed advances in technology would ensure an endless supply of goods for our material needs. So I, I've used a word there I keyed on Tuesday, cornucopia, a sense that nature has endlessly abundant natural resources. 
both of these works of art in their way, I think, um, work against that naivete about the natural world. To understand how viewing a painting might achieve a similar aesthetic effect as reading a short story, and to better root Innes and Jewett's respective engagements with Swedenborg, we must now turn to each figure in their various individual contexts in order to braid together their homes for herons. Has anyone read Sarah Orne Jewett's work? We're in a room full of main people. Fantastic. Okay, so. Country some, appointed first. Uh huh. Country appointed first. She's a so called regionalist, which means her work is very specific to place. And um, she tries to capture the way rural Maine sounded in the late 19th century. She really was into dialect. So for me, it's sort of impenetrable when her characters start talking. <laughs> but someone from here might, might have uh, better luck. Um, and I, I won't go into this, but I want to put it out here sort of in sync with Sage's presentation yesterday and guards as well raising questions about um, a constructive yet critical engagement with our tradition that acknowledges some of the limitations from the 18th century. Um, Jewett had a loving relationship with a woman for most of her life. And part of my project is thinking about um, how important that shared space of love and admiration between two women is in her nature writing and part of her, her advocacy. She was a pioneering feminist too. But I'm, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about birds. Jewett's engagement with Swedenborgian ideas was primarily through her deep friendship, and one is attempted to say apprenticeship, an intellectual apprenticeship, with Theophilus Parsons, pictured here. Parsons was part of the 1818 class at Harvard University that included Samson Reed, the Swedenborgian druggist, and Ralph Waldo Emerson's older brother. Samson Reed and Theophilus Parsons were members of the Swedenborgian vanguard in Boston, Many people in this room will know about how important he was for the history of the new church in New England. And Parsons went on to become a successful lawyer. And by the time Jewett met him at a seaside resort in Maine, not very far away from us, in 1872, Parsons had become dean of Harvard's law school. Between 1872 and 1881, over an 11-year period, Parsons and Jewett maintained an extensive correspondence and Parsons passed on a number of works by or about Swedenborg to his young friend and protege. Jewett, in turn, regularly sent onto Parsons her fiction and asked for his input and advice. The importance of Parsons and Swedenborgian thought for Jewett in this period is unmistakable. Nobody has helped me to think more than you have, Jewett enthused to Parsons in a letter from 1881. It has been signally acknowledged by literary critics and historians, especially by the eco-feminist Josephine Donovan. According to Donovan, Jewett derived two central ideas from her engagement with Parsons and Swedenborg. One, a sense of use that came to inform her literary aesthetic. Jewett was often debilitated early on by a sense of purposelessness. She was fairly privileged and wealthy. She didn't have to, to work. She had the luxury of being able to, to write. And her engagement with Swedenborgian doctrines of use, according to Donovan, caused her to think about her fiction writing 
as having an intrinsic social value. It could do things in the world, make the world a better place. Secondly, writes Donovan, Jewett clearly responded to Swedenborgian models of influx that account for how the spiritual engages with the natural and could be perceived as a dynamic flow through the proper reading of correspondences in nature. And if you've read Deep Haven, Country of Pointed Furs, you'll know some of those moments where the young female protagonists have these epiphany sorts of experiences in nature where they, they feel the presence. Sometimes she even uses the word, the spiritual world within nature. We'll be looking at some of those instances in a moment. So how does this manifest itself in Jewett's fiction? Let's turn now to one of the most striking cases in point and Jewett's most well-known example of regionalist fiction, her tale, A White Heron. And if you haven't read A White Heron, email me after this talk. I'll send you a PDF. It's a really beautiful, fairly quick and easy read. And given our geographical location here in Maine, it would, it would behoove you to take a look at it because it's one of her, her main stories. As we go into the story, we need to remember the demonstrable ways that the millinery industry, by millinery I mean hats, fashionable hats, the millinery industry rapaciously slaughtered herons and other waterfowl, that this had moved more and more into the public sphere. As I have already noted, the same year Jewett publishes A White Heron, George Bird Linnell had established the first Audubon group that was dedicated to ending the mass slaughter of birds and the destruction of their habitat. So not, it seems like only two or three people had read A White Heron. Is that right? I think I, I saw Nancy's hand up. No. Okay. Then I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context of what the plot is like. You can still read it. I'm not giving away any, any surprises here. The story is fairly straightforward. The protagonist, Sylvia, a name that immediately invokes the Roman woodland deity Sylvanus, Sylvia, is a young nine-year-old girl living with her impoverished grandmother in rural Maine. Her parents appear to have abandoned her to seek their fortunes in California. Sylvia and her grandmother's poor but harmonious pastoral life in the country is interrupted by a young ornithologist who is tramping through the countryside, shooting and bagging bird specimens for his collection, which he then paints and draws. When he learns that little Sylvia has a deep affinity with wild creatures, he suspects that she might know where to find the elusive rare white heron, a rare bird that he had recently glimpsed in the area. Sylvia feels a budding attraction to the young man with a gun and wrestles within herself for she indeed knows where the heron is likely to be found. Late one night, in the strangest part of the story, while the visitor is still staying with them, Sylvia wanders out, she almost sleepwalks, into the moonlight forest in her night clothes to a gigantic old growth pine. Jewett was also very concerned with deforestation in the logging industry. An old growth pine, the largest tree around for miles. She climbs the tree as the dawn begins to come up and as the sun rises bewilderingly bright, in her words, she catches a glimpse of the elusive heron near its mate and nest in a moment of transcendental perception. She scales down the tree, exhausted, covered in pine sap, imagining what the young man with the gun would say when she revealed where his object of desire lay. 
But then, in the strangest turn of the story, once Sylvia is back at the farmhouse, she refuses to speak. She doesn't talk. Here is how Jewett describes the end of the story. Here she comes now, paler than ever, and her worn old frock is torn and tattered and smeared with pine pitch. The grandmother and the sportsman stand in the door together and question her, and the splendid moment has come to speak of the dead hemlock tree by the green marsh where the bird nests. But Sylvia does not speak after all, though the old grandmother fretfully rebukes her, and the young man's kind, appealing eyes are looking straight and deep into her own. He can make them rich with money. He has promised it, and they are poor now. He is so well worth making happy, and he waits to hear the story she can tell. No, she must keep silence. What is it that suddenly forbids her and makes her dumb? Not dumb in the sense of stupid, but dumb not speaking for the kids in the room. Has she been nine years growing, and now when the great wide world for the first time puts out a hand to her, she must thrust it aside for a bird's sake? The murmur of the pine's green branches is in her ears. She remembers how the white heron came flying through the golden air and how they watched the sea and the morning together. And Sylvia cannot speak. She cannot tell the heron's secret and give its life away. As many literary critics have observed, Jewett's figure of the gun-toting ornithologist is a stand-in for John James Audubon and other 19th century scientific birders who often avidly participated in the wholesale destruction of birds in the name of science. There is great irony in the late 19th century groundswell of conservation around birds naming itself after Audubon. And if you, if you know your history, the Audubon Society has not begun by this French-American guy on the left with his gun. It was, uh, they used his name for these conservation groups. In fact, one of the greatest obstacles to bird conservation came from scientific lobbies who defended the killing and taxidermy of bird specimens and cataloging them into museums as necessary for the progress of scientific knowledge in the 19th century. When the head of the American Ornithological Union of Jewett's day, a guild of professional and amateur avian biologists, was asked to attend an Audubon Society meeting in Washington, DC, he is said to have coolly replied, I do not protect birds, I kill them. So science was allied with a very cornucopic sense of the natural world as being an endless resource. Um, here on the right, I've just um, given you a plate from Audubon's very famous book, Birds of America, which I hope some of you might have seen, which is a spectacular, lavish book of birds, very large, uh, of which limited editions were made. And this is his plate of a white heron, just so we have some continuity with the story. So you might be asking, what's Swedenborgian in Jewett's most famous short story that seems to turn its back on an opportunity to transform nature into profitable science. One thread is certainly found in the text locating spiritual authority in nature. Through a correspondential lens, nature is made to speak like a biblical text and teach and instruct. A very representative moment of this in Jewett's fiction is in the earlier novella Deephaven, which Dean said he has read, um, that among of all of Jewett's work, 
probably bears the strongest Swedenborgian imprint. Gosh, time is flying. I can't believe I just have five minutes left. We're not even on to Innes. You have to wait for the book. So maybe what I'll do quickly is um, just give you a sense of this correspondential sense in Jewett's fiction, then we'll, we'll leapfrog over uh, into Innes so we can at least talk about his bird paintings. So the, this is uh, a, two female characters looking at nature in the, the novella Deephaven, looking at the main coast. I think, said Kate, that the more one lives out of doors, the more personality there seems to be in what we call inanimate things. The strength of the hills and the voice of the waves are no longer only grand poetical sentences, but an expression of something real and more and more one finds God himself written in the world and believes that we may read the thoughts of he writes for us in the book of nature. And after this, we were silent for a while. And in the meantime, it grew very late. And we watched the fire until there were only a few sparks in the ashes. So on and so forth. I put this in line with those moments in Muir. I gave you a little sense of, of where Swedenborgian correspondence theory, more so than Swedenborg's writings themselves, really shifted towards nature as working like a biblical text, as, as a language that one had to have a hermeneutical approach towards. God himself written in the world. The thoughts of he writes for us in the book of nature. Okay. Lightning speed into George Innes. Um, the story of Innes's engagement with Swedenborg has been well told by many other scholars and art historians, so I don't want to um, rehearse all that here. This is an image of the Eagleswood Military Academy, which was a radical, utopian, intentional community that came about in New Jersey in the 1850s that had a lot of Swedenborgian abolitionists tied to it. So they lived together, they educated, um, soldiers later on for the Union Army um, during the Civil War. And it's here that uh, George Ennis met William Page, a Swedenborgian painter, and converted to the new church um, and began to paint in new and different kinds of ways. In my book, I talk about how Ennis was also a deep adherent of Henry George, who was um, a public intellectual in the 19th century, not so well remembered, who was a bit of a radical and was very worried about the privatization of public space and public lands and argued strongly for a reform of our tax code in the US that would abolish private property in essence. Um, and a lot of um, Swedenborgians were into his work. The New Jerusalem Messenger featured lots of articles and writings about George. And one of Innes's last uh, written articles is on George uh, before Innes dies. I think the year before he dies, he publishes a long piece about Henry George advocating for his uh, approach towards private property. And art historians have talked about how Innes's attention to George in Swedenborgian periodicals and elsewhere um, helps us understand um, pictures of living together in common space and interesting in new kinds of ways. I don't have a chance to go into all that here. And in my chapter, <laughs> lightning speed to try and wrap things up, I look at how Innes 
in the latter half of his career, began to spend a lot of time in Florida, vacationing near the Everglades Swamp on the coast. And some of his most beautiful, luminescent Swedenborgian canvases are of Florida topography. And as Innes was making these canvases and reading a lot of Henry George, there was a budding attempt to conserve and preserve the Everglades as a space worthy of wilderness conversation, uh, conservation in the same way that Muir had been conserving for the preservation of Yosemite Valley. So one way of looking at these paintings, these are three pictures, you can't see them in this terrible, um, uh, you need to see them in person, the light is too diffuse. We have pictures of uh, herons that, like Innes' human figures, dissolve into the landscape. There's a blurring that happens. Mm -hmm. And if I had more time, I would talk about how that blurring between um, the bird and their surrounds and then us as a viewer trying to make sense of what we see in the Innes is very similar to what Jewett does in her White's Heron story where when Sylvia climbs the tree, we didn't read the passage, there's a mixing of voices and it's hard to tell who is speaking, the bird, the tree, Sylvia, the author Sarah Orne Jewett, they're conjoined together in sort of a, an ecology of relations in the text. And I, I see Ennis's paintings as doing a similar thing with what they do. And they're both deeply informed by this um, perspective of nature that's informed by Swedenborgian correspondences. You can see here, this is where the white heron is. I'm sorry, it looks like a white blob of paint, but in person, it's quite distinctly a text. And um, this is probably his most well-known painting of herons, the home of the heron, it's called, um, which is of the Everglades swamp. So I have to stop. Um, and um, to be continued, Trevor, could you or someone else remind me of the time? Do I go right up till 10? 10 up? So I have to stop now. Yes, you do. Okay. So thank you. Um, and we can talk more at discussion or over lunch or whatever. So thank you.